The world is constantly innovating and improving, whether in technology, defense manufacturing processes, and even community and culture. We've grown leaps and bounds over the last 50 years. We continue to push towards higher standards, greater goals, and better standards of living. Hi, I'm Dylan Drake, the Advanced Manufacturing Product Manager for Phillips Federal, and your host for the TechShift Podcast. Today, we sit down with EWI's AM Business Director, Howie Murado. Howie's focus at EWI is to provide leadership and strategic direction to continue advancing EWI's vast AM portfolio and delivering cutting-edge solutions to industry. Howie's extensive network makes him a great fit to serve as a liaison between EWI's world-class technical staff and the growing industrial base. Now sit back, relax, and let's jump on in. Mr. Howie Murado, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dylan. It's, uh, it's great to be here today. Excited to talk to you and, and all your listeners. It's been a long time coming. We, uh, we've, we've definitely had quite a few different conversations in the past and saw each other kind of leading up to this on a few different occasions and different projects, but I'm really happy to get you uh, sitting down with us and be able to kind of you know, open up what EWI, you know, what, what their current goals are and what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a pleasure uh, to be able to talk about that and talk with you, Dylan. Like you said, it's been a long time coming, and I think well, there's a lot of synergy between what you what you're working on and, and what we're looking at at EWI. Um, if you'd like, I can kind of just give a, a quick rundown for the listeners um, of kind of who we are, what we do, and 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 how we kind of got to this point in this conversation. If that makes sense. Yeah. Go ahead and go ahead and fire okay. away. Sure. So EWI um, is an interesting entity. Uh, used to be known as the Edison Welding Institute. So some of your listeners may have heard that before. Uh, and it was started uh, officially back in 1984, uh, right here on the campus of the Ohio State University on Lane Avenue, for those of you that are familiar with Columbus. Um, now, for all you Michigan fans out there, we are no longer affiliated with Ohio State. So feel free to do business <laughs> with us. <laughs> we are that while there may be a few Buckeye fans here, we are no longer officially uh, part of Ohio State. Even though we're still on the campus, we're actually on what they consider the innovation campus now, uh, just to the west of uh, 315. If you're familiar with the area, um, and uh, the ed- the uh, building engineering school for Ohio State actually resides within the building that we own. They actually rent it from us. So. Uh, still have a close relationship with Ohio State, but again, we, we are no longer part of Ohio State, nor are we subsidized by Ohio State. However, um, what we are is a manufacturing research and development nonprofit. Not too many of those exist. Um, so there, you know, Battelle, some of you may have heard of that. We have a lot of Battelle alum here because Battelle's from Columbus. This is somewhat of a similar model to them, maybe not as big though. But what the beauty of it is, is that obviously we do welding and joining. That's kind of our, our core, but um, we've added a lot of technologies over the year. Hence why we would now, you know, have went to the EWI moniker instead, because I think it, it, it's able to capture more of what we do. You know, we do a lot of additive now, which is where I come in as the, uh, as the business director for additive manufacturing and uh, you know, a variety of technologies. But what I love about what we do, and we like to call ourselves the Switzerland of joining or the Switzerland of additive manufacturing, because we're not beholden to any OEM. Uh, we're not beholden to any technology. Um, we try to work with all OEMs if they're interested in working with us, with all customers, all clients, which right now is about 50% government, 50% commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, and, and if we find that one technology is not the right answer, then we'll tell you that, right? And we may refer you to another technology within our company or may say, hey, 
you know, really for what you're looking at, you need to go with injection molding, for example. Uh, this just isn't going to be the technology. But, but you know, love being agnostic in the space. And in the short, I've been with EWI now for a couple of years. Um, you know, what, what I like about it is that it gives me the opportunity to spread my wings and explore all the way from materials required mm -hmm. for additive and how do we acquire those materials? How do we find those materials? So when you, when you look into the, the news and you see all the supply chain challenges around rare earths or tungsten or tantalum um, or gallium, you know, I can play in that space because we need those materials so that we can then additively manufacture them to make what our, our clients or the government needs, right? And so I can, I, I'm working with companies in that realm all the way up to, um, you know, how do we scale this in manufacturing, right? So the real sweet spot for EWI is really in that TRL four to seven range. Um, we can do one to three and we will do seven to nine if we need to up to prototypes, but really we want to take an existing technology and we want to help a company or the government be able to scale it. Um, and that is a big thing. I think, as you know, we talk supply chain issues in the United States, you know, not only are the raw materials an issue, but even if we have the raw materials, we don't necessarily have the manufacturing capability or capacity. Um, so that's really where EWI resides. And I think it's an exciting time, if, if not a bit of a scary time um, for us, because, you know, American manufacturing obviously took a big hit in the 80s. I grew up in Northeast Ohio, uh, where all the steel mills were up there. And uh, it's, you know, almost a ghost town compared to when, you know, when I moved there. So, you know, definitely saw that big loss in, in, in large scale added manufacturing or large scale manufacturing. And, and really, you know, we, we think with some of our technologies, particularly additive, um, we can help uh, recapitalize some of that, bring some of that back, or, or, but in a different way, more efficient, cleaner, um, using less material, um, and then also taking advantage in, of things like topological optimization uh, in additive to even do things better. So pretty exciting. And in one of the, the most recent technologies we've added, which, which is a personal initiative of mine, uh, is the Cold Spray Center of Excellence. Um, mm -hmm. I believe will be the first, um, the first commercial Cold Spray Center of Excellence uh, in the world. We're going to be putting that in Buffalo. Uh, very blessed to have offices in Columbus and Buffalo, uh, Columbus, Ohio, and Buffalo, New York. Um, really, New York is really interested in reinvigorating manufacturing, uh, particularly in Western New York. Um, so we've, we've benefited from that, working closely with the state uh, on trying to bring back manufacturing. And as a result of that, we were able to uh, place our Cold Spray Center of Excellence there. And we're going to have, um, for, those, for those folks out on the, on the podcast listening that don't know what Cold Spray is, essentially it's a form traditionally thought of for repair, but now actually for additive manufacturing as well, where you take a powder, a metal powder usually, or you can use other powders, and then you speed it up uh, to supersonic uh, velocity. And then you essentially run it through a De Laval nozzle, which is somewhat like a jet engine. And then you spray it onto a surface, any metal surface usually. And then that bonds, there's a mechanical bond. There's no melting. That's why it's called cold spray. Well, there is heat involved um, and obviously gas. Um, the, real, the real bonding comes from a mechanical uh, plastic deformation of that material as it strikes the surface. And then you can build very quickly. It's a very fast form of additive manufacturing for, for parts of repair. Um, and, and, you know, just layer on layer, just like all additive. Um, but it's pretty amazing what you can do with cold spray because you can use dissimilar metals. You don't have to worry about um, the challenges that you often have with a heat, with a bond uh, through a weld. 
um, some of those chemical issues that you may have in those situations. Because it's a mechanical bond, um, you, can, you can bond most any metal um, within the limits of the materials, right? And, and how strong one may be or, or, or durable one may be uh, as compared to the other and, and the velocity at which you're using uh, cold spray. So we get, it opens up amazing doors. I don't think folks have uh, really, I think we just scratched the surface on it. We're gonna have a, a representative technology from each of the three types of cold spray. There'll be a high pressure cold spray system, um, which in this case, we'll be using a VRC system. And then in the, and then the low pressure, which will be a center line. And then a, 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 a system that the only real system in the world at this point that's been fielded commercially uh, is a speed 3D system for actually using cold spray for additive manufacturing. Mm -hmm. They're an Australian company, very interesting group, done a lot of stuff with the Australian army. Um, there's a lot of good stuff out there online. And, and just because we have those three systems doesn't mean we stay, we'll be married to those three systems forever. They're representative. Um, we realize the technology will advance. And in many, and in many cases, what we do is build our own open architecture systems. So while we may work with OEMs or use OEM systems, the eventual goal in many cases is for us to have our own open architecture, uh, laser powder bed fusion, cold spray, arc DED, um, E-beam. You know, we may never get there with some of those technologies because some of them are very complex, but the more we can open up a system and actually manipulate it, embed sensors um, and monitors and cameras so that we can do things like in-situ certification and, and, and qualification, especially in, in when we team with our data science team out of Buffalo, mm -hmm. which I think is also a unique thing of EWI is to have a data science team. Um, I think we can, we can generate some pretty incredible results, um, but you can't always do that with an OEM system. So I think yeah. that, that's kind of a quick rundown of, of, well, not really a quick rundown, but a, at least a rundown <laughs> of EWI. So hopefully everyone understands what we do and, and who we are. Wow. That, that, that's a lot. So on the Innovation Center, uh, just to kind of go back a little bit on that, mm -hmm. um, you, you mentioned, you know, building up you know, manufacturing in that area. Are you doing workforce development at the Innovation Center? We are. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we are. So that's a big, big uh, initiative for Western New York, and it's been a big initiative for us. We have a whole team dedicated to workforce development, um, really focused right now locally. Um, but we'd like to expand that to a national forum. Um, you know, I, I think as you're well aware, Dylan, obviously, you know, we, we, the U.S. has lost a lot of their, their skilled trades personnel over mm -hmm. the years, you know, welders, machinists, um, and, and a number of other, you know, skilled trades that we, we often over, overlook that, that are critical to manufacturing. So, you know, while we're more focused on some of the advanced technologies like additive manufacturing, but also, you know, we do things with robotics. We have a robotics team. Um, and so we just try to get, you know, folks interested in the technologies and, and try to give them some engaging coursework to do that. And, you know, then, you know, again, we may, we expand, may expand this nationally, but right now we're really hyper-focused locally and, and, there's a lot of need there and there's a lot of incentive to do that up there, but, but uh, absolutely workforce development is one of our key tenants. That's amazing. So also kind of going into some of the other technologies, uh, um, mm -hmm. knowing that EWI has kind of got their, their hand in a little bit of everything, but around the AM technology. So we mentioned cold spray um, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm going to go out of on a limb here, maybe just guess that DMLS as well. Um, mm -hmm. What are some other technologies in AM that EWI is a part of? Yeah, so uh, one of the really unique ones that is just kind of coming into its own is friction stirrer additive. 
manufacturing. So a lot of people have been looking at friction stir welding for a long time. We have a lot of expertise in that. The friction stir additive is a pretty impressive form of additive where you're using basically down pressure and then stir, and then you stir the metal. Again, not really melting it, um, but, but causing it to bond through that stirring mechanism um, mm. through the metal. So you can uh, blend multiple layers of metal, multi-materials. And the beauty of that is because um, you're not really changing um, the microstructure of the metal, right? Because you're not heating it up. Um, you, you don't have to heat treat afterwards. So you can do very large pieces of metal um, and bring them together without heat treatment. So that's a huge advantage when you're talking large, large format additive manufacturing, when you're looking to try to make really big things. So we have that capability here. Um, uh, another, another capability that we spun off, but still is uh, under the roof, if you will, uh, and we still are part owners in is, is uh, ultrasonic additive manufacturing for metal. A lot of people are, are familiar with ultrasonic additive for for polymers or plastics, but uh, not so much for metal. And, and, and just for your listeners, you know, ultrasonic additive to make it simple is basically taking two sheets of metal, vibrating them at the right frequency very quickly. And then that in, in, the, in that vibration, when they're vibrating and in sync, they're basically, they will bond without melting. Again, there's heat involved because there's friction, but, but you don't change the microstructure of either sheet of metal. Um, that's really useful for embedded electronics which um, I know is something that it hopefully get a chance to talk to uh, here in a bit, you know, for, for technologies like hypersonics. Mm -hmm. So that's a great uh, technology for that, for embedded electronics, as well as other things, just being able to do multi-materials. And we do that here. And then, uh, you know, you mentioned DMLS or laser powder bed fusion. We do that. Uh, I mentioned, I think I might've mentioned ARC, uh, direct energy deposition. So that's um, wire ARC uh, DED. Essentially it's welding, right? Which is why we do it. So it's, but instead of, just doing a repair or a joint, uh, joining a joint, you you actually are, are again building up layer on layer on layer using uh, wire arc technique. We also have laser DED uh, technology as well. We can do some amazing stuff with that um, direct energy deposition, and then we have um, E beam, so electron beam, uh, mm -hmm. and even powder blown uh, direct energy de deposition. So a couple, a lot of direct energy deposition technologies here. Um, and each has their strengths. Um, and so we try to leverage those uh, for the folks that we work with. Um, so those are some of the other ones. You know, we're looking at hybrid additive manufacturing, um, which probably be, you could do a wire arc or laser arc solution mm -hmm. um, in many cases. And then obviously having that, that CNC or computer numerically controlled milling capability, that milling capability on the same machine, that will speed things up significantly uh, when you're talking about manufacturing. Um, and, and, and the idea of democratizing manufacturing, you know, you know, I have a vision that someday we could have a, you know, an additive, a metal additive manufacturing capability in every single machine shop in America, um, if we can really dial in hybrid additive manufacturing. So, um, you know, those are kind of um, our highlights. We have all the modalities of AM, though, um, looking at a couple different sectors, you know, um, nuclear is coming online again, you know, it's become, it's coming in vogue again, lots of opportunity there. Aerospace has been our traditional group of customers, but now maybe shipbuilding, we're starting to see some efforts and some interest there. Medical holds a lot of promise, mm -hmm. particularly for a couple of the modalities. I'm, I'm very excited about that. It's just trying to get through the regulations. That's a challenge. And, um, you know, just, a, you know, heavy manufacturing, automotive, even automotive is an interesting one, you know, in the past, Automotive really wasn't a great application for um, 
additive because the volume, just the numbers that you need uh, of items. But with EVs and some other trends right now, um, I think, and and just additive getting faster and better all the time, I think you're going to see that more in automotive. And of course, defense, we do do a lot of work for defense and defense is very interesting additive because the supply chain issues, you know, being able to make things at the point of need um, and just more independence for the U.S. when it comes to the supply chain, you know, additive gives us a lot of opportunities there too. So um, yeah, so hopefully that's a pretty good overview of, of kind of what we do and, uh, and, and the different types of modalities of additive that we employ. For sure. I think that, you know, EWI and kind of hearing all that, y'all have a quite the slew of uh, tools at your disposal for solutions for all your customers. And it seems like uh, you're kind of in every industry. So yeah. you, got, you got it from, you know, the medical to the, you know, the, you have the, uh, the government portion, so the federal, and then you even have automotive. And I do have, you know, a few comments on the automotive. It is, there's so many cool opportunities and it used to be from more of a customizable um, kind of approach to get mm-hmm. AM into automotive. And now there's, you know, more performance and you can, you're starting to see that in kind of, you know, the racing Yes, um, the racing world. But now, as you know, AM starting to produce more as far as a manufacturing production line. Uh, I think we're going to start seeing some some products come through. I mean, obviously, there was a little bit more of a customizable you know feature this features these last years, especially with the Wagoneer from Jeep. But mm-hmm. I think I, I I believe that here in the next few years, we're going to see some small production you know cars coming out with a little bit more additive. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, I think you're going to see in the EVs in particular, because, again, you mentioned lower volumes mm-hmm. um, and they've got some real hard challenges. I mean, lightweighting the frame may not be that interesting to them now because, excuse me, because the battery packs weigh so much. Right. I mean, you're, so are you really gaining a lot by lightweighting? But some companies believe that you are right. So some companies still want to try to lightweight the frame while others have kind of given up on it. So there's opportunities in the lightweighting piece. And then there's lightweighting of the battery structure itself. Right. So. How can, can we lightweight the battery through additive? Can we light, lightweight the frame that you put the, the battery in? Is there ways to, to get smarter about that? So I think additive holds a lot of value in lightweighting. And I think that's one potential uh, avenue that, that we're going to pursue in automotive. So yeah, it's exciting. It's an exciting time. Uh, it's a challenging time, but it's also an exciting time. Speaking of kind of, you know, some other opportunities here that UWI is trying to you know, either has their hand in or maybe has something coming in here in the next future is kind of the criticality race uh, within hypersonics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that you and I uh, discussed this a little bit um, kind of in previous calls, but if we can kind of bring uh, our audience up to date, you know, um, sure. what, what are we doing within hypersonics through EWI? Um, kind of what is the goal? What is it? And yeah. why, why should it be important? Uh, for everyone yeah. to kind of stay, uh, you know, in the loop and, you know, keeping up with, you know, where we are. Yeah. I, hypersonics, you know, it's kind of a buzzword right now and, and it's not necessarily real well understood. So, yeah. So to your point, I'll try to kind of give a brief overview of what it is, where it's at, why it's important. And then we can talk about what we're trying to do with EWI to, to support the U.S.'s efforts in that. Um, so, so hypersonics, technically, uh, when you look out online, you'll see definitions that define um, any a vehicle that can go or, or, or structure that can go five, um, Mach five or faster. So you're looking at essentially Mach five to Mach 25. So, so think, um, you know, 4,000, roughly 4,000 miles per hour, all the way up to over 20,000 miles per hour. So, so it's decently fast. 
Yeah, pretty fast. I mean, I can run a little faster. At least I could in my prime. Just kidding. Um, you know, so yeah. So so that creates a lot of challenges. Though. And, you know, NASA's been doing this for a long time. People are like, well, if they know anything about the NASA program and rockets, rockets have been going that fast for a long time. Why is this such a big deal? Well, that's that's the next point. So it's going this, this body, if you will, um, vehicle or system, you know, it's not necessarily going out of the atmosphere, right? So traditionally, if you think of an intercontinental ballistic missile or a rocket going to space, those those leave the atmosphere and come back in. Um, that's not necessarily the case really with hypersonics. So um, while there may be a initial rise in altitude, then it becomes essentially in many cases a glide vehicle um, with, some, with some ability to change direction, though not necessarily much. Um, and, and so from a, from a military perspective, that creates a very challenging dilemma. Um, moving at those speeds um, and at the altitudes uh, that they move at, um, and then the way they often drop off in the final uh, phase of their flight makes them very one, hard to detect, two, to track, and then three, to stop um, because of the speed. So, um, Essentially, you can have a non-nuclear, right, a conventional strike that's nearly impossible to stop. Now, there are people working on that right now, but, you know, um, it is a capability that, again, conventionally could cause immense amount of first strike damage, um, crippling a military potentially at scale. Um, thankfully, you know, we don't know that anyone's there yet, but I think um if people are watching the news um you know the russians have used have used uh hypersonics mm -hmm. uh, in the ukraine uh the chinese successfully tested one in october of last year general milley the chairman of the joint chief staff said well, it's a near sputnik moment i think it is a sputnik moment um I, it's no secret that the chinese are ahead of us right um and General Thurgood, um, if anyone, by the way, if you're any of your listeners or you ever get a chance to hear uh, Lieutenant General Thurgood speak, I, I highly recommend it. He is uh, an Army three-star, so that's even a bigger endorsement coming from a Marine Corps Reserve Colonel. Um, but he's the Director of Hypersonics, uh, Directed Energy, Space, and Rapid Acquisition uh, under the uh, Army's Office of Acquisition Technology um, and uh, logistics. So uh, he is uh, an amazing speaker. And what he, he said, basically, he got called to the carpet. He got called to the White House mm -hmm. and he got asked, why are, why are we behind? I'm putting that in air quotation marks because we may not be behind. It's a, we are in some ways, but, but it, it, we also have different goals. Um, but his answer was very insightful. And he said, because we chose to be. Because we chose to be. And what he meant by that was we had invested in hypersonics technology um, and had started pursuing this capability even back as early as the 80s. And again, we knew about it from NASA and from using it for space systems uh, and knew how to do it. Um, but we did not choose to make the investment over time for a variety of reasons, uh, different focus for the military, more on counterinsurgency for the last 20 years. Um, but even before that, the wall had fallen. So, um, you know, maybe we thought, well, we don't have to worry about a peer competitor or near peer competitor. Um, so, so we decided not to, to pursue a lot of it because it wasn't cheap and it wasn't easy. Right. Um, so, so, but China and Russia saw, you know, the use of hypersonics as a, as a potential asymmetric advantage. So um, 
they very much pursued this technology because they saw how well and easily we operated against conventional forces in the Iraq, uh, the Iraq war um, and in then follow on years in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so they said, you know, we can't fight the way we always used to fight. And the Russians are seeing that now even uh, in the Ukraine. Um, so they got to do something different. So uh, that's how we got here. It, and I mentioned the challenges, you know, when you're when you're flying something at Mach 5 or Mach 25, um, the heat is immense. The pressure is immense. Um, and, and to put electronics in there, potentially a guidance system, all of those other things you might need for a hypersonic vehicle, you, I mean, creates huge challenges from a materials perspective, from a manufacturing perspective. And as we all know, you know, we, we've lost a lot of our ability to manufacture rockets in this country or, or pretty much any uh, thing that we used to be the best out in the world. So, you know, now we have to ramp up this capability and, you know, I think you're going to see that additive really is the only way that we're going to get there, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think you hit on quite a few different topics. And I think not only just within the hypersonics, and I think it also kind of loops back into the beginning of our conversations, like, you know, workforce development. How do we, we don't have a lack of talent here in the U.S. It's and not that is at one all. thing we don't have. Um, but we do need to educate the mm -hmm. talent to bring them up to speed with the, the technology we currently have to utilize it to its fullest potential. You hit the nail on the head, Dylan. And I think that this is really extremely important because if, if we need to be able to manufacture these types of, uh, I guess, um, new technology with the manufacturing technology, but it needs to be in-house. Yep, absolutely. And you hit, there's three things that, that really just, they hammered home at the Hypersonics Innovation Conference I went to sponsored by DSI uh, and the Navy. Uh, over in Dayton, Ohio, of all places, last last week, was affordability, right? It has to be affordable. If we're going to scale, it's got to be affordable. If we're going to scale it, 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 we've got to reduce lead times. Mm. Um, you know, right now, the lead times are incredibly long for forgings, right? Hence why I mentioned additive. We've got to reduce lead times, and we got to be able to, and we got to be able to do it in host. And, and, and you mentioned the, the personnel issue. That might be the biggest problem, right? Or the biggest challenge. I mean, we have huge material challenges. Um, we have huge manufacturing challenges as, as, as far as how do we work with these materials. But really the biggest one is, and this was a statistic that was thrown out uh, the conference last week, was we lost in the 80s after the Cold War. So I mentioned the Cold War, the, the, you know, the fall of Soviet Union, or the apparent fall. I think we're seeing the rise of it again here. Um, is when that happened, we lost 80% of our solid rocket companies in the United States. 80% of our solid rocket companies in the United States closed after the Cold War. 90% of the workforce was lost or retired. Wow. So we are almost starting from scratch. Right? So it didn't even it didn't even leave. It just stopped. It just, it just stopped. It just stopped. And 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 that is not something that's easy to regenerate, right? Once you lose something, particularly if it's a it's a, a skill set or an, a human a human being skill set or expertise, you just don't get that back. Um, and and I we've seen that in a lot of other areas of manufacturing, but you know I think that's what's really exacerbated, you know, the situation with hypersonics. And that's not something you hear about in the news very often, right? right? You, you hear about the materials, you hear about the engineering challenges. Um, you don't hear about the workforce challenges, but I think it, it seems common sense, right? I mean, everyone is challenged right now. Your, your podcast listeners, we are here, I'm, you know, I'm sure at EWI as well, or at uh, Phillips as well, you know, it's, it's finding, finding folks, just finding folks, finding good folks, finding folks who'll show up and do a good job. And, and so uh, in, in this critical realm, like you said, it's not that we don't have a shortage. It's not that we don't have the talent. 
it's we may have just lost the expertise so we, we can't fully leverage our talent right and so that's where workforce development is going to be huge and i'll tell you it starts at the grade schools um mm-hmm. you get a 3d printer in the kids kids classroom right and then you, you advance that in, in middle school and then up into high school right and you get kids who are interested in technology and it's, you know, and, and parents who will support it. You know, nobody ever used to want their kids to go work in factories. When I grew up in the eighties, that was the last thing anybody and, and growing up in Northeast Ohio, where a lot of people were factory workers, a lot of parents were factory workers. The last thing they ever wanted their kid to do was go work in a factory just like right. that. Right? right. And so, so we lost a lot of those skilled trades. This is something again, with ad, advanced and additive manufacturing, you know, I think it's something parents can get get behind and you don't necessarily have to have a college degree, maybe an associate's degree, right, to be a technician, but you can contribute and you can contribute in a clean, safe and, and meaningful way uh, through additive manufacturing. But we've got to energize that workforce. We've got to cha- train that workforce mm-hmm. or it doesn't matter how many good materials engineers we have or, or how many good 3D printing machines we have, you know, and processes. If we have no one to work on them, we're still going to uh, fall short of our goal. Right. When it comes to hypersonics and and all other, and a lot of other things as well. And kind of to your point there, from from then to now, I think manufacturing and and kind of the those manufacturing hubs or warehouses have really evolved. So a technician isn't what a technician used to be. A technician right. now right. can code. A technician mm-hmm. now can yeah, knows how to utilize robotics and right. and kind of you know uh, understand kind of the full scale of the supply chain and, and know where things are going wrong and they're not just painting a wall and right. or, or doing one thing on that on that um, that, that line. So mm-hmm. I think that now we have really kind of not only that, that talent, but now we have the education that can really produce more, not only production, but, you know, better quality product. Um, right. And it's just like you said, getting the education out there. And uh, it's good to see. I know whenever I was uh, uh, graduating high school, they just started really pushing in the manufacturing side of things again. Mm-hmm. So more of the milling, the lathe. You know, what is an EDM? I had, had a code. Um, right. but I, I completely agree. We need to start bringing and kind of mixing in the, the old with the new technology and kind of state that those are kind of one and the same. It is manufacturing. Yeah, Dylan, I agree. And, you know, one of the things that I think we miss out, you know, being a, a, a Marine Corps reservist, um, you know, and being in the military, a lot of people thank me for their service. But, you know, I, I thank other people for their service. You know, I, I tell people, hey, if you're going to work, you're doing your job and you're doing it well, you're, I need to thank you because you're paying the taxes and allowing me to do what I do. But, but to dig a little deeper on that, and this is taking nothing away from the World War II veterans. My, my grandfather was infantry in World War II, Army Infantry, 410th Cax Division, Bronze Star, Purple Hearts, um, you know, incredible man, part of the greatest generation, right? But we don't win. We don't win against Germany and Japan unless we have an incredible industrial base, right? right? The arsenal of democracy, right? Great book read. If anybody wants a, a book recommendation, arsenal of democracy, great one to read. The manufacturing power of the United States drove the Germans and the Japanese into the ground with thanks to the, again, the bravery of our men and women, but without, without you know, you can be, I mean, look at the Polish in World War II. I mean, a lot of people get the Polish our time, but they fought incredibly bravely against the Germans and the, and the Russians at the time but they, they didn't have the technology. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you can be incredibly brave uh, and you can, and you can go out and, and risk and sacrifice your life for your nation. But if you don't have the technology and the manufacturing and the supply chain behind it um, sooner or later, you know, you're going to lose. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, to me, the, the heroes of the future are those technicians and those engineers 
Um, you know, the military, we're, we, you know, we're the receivers of that. But without them, it won't matter, uh, right. frankly. And, and uh, so, you know, I kind of want to emphasize the point to everyone listening. Um, you know, if you're in engineering or if you're a technician, if you're looking at advanced manufacturing technologies, you know, from milling to lathing to 3D printing to cold spray to, to, to hybrid additive or whatever, you're the heroes. And America needs more of you. And without more people like that, there's no way the military can do what it needs to do. So, I mean, we need to kind of, uh, you know, re I think reevaluate a, a bit, you know, who, who's really to be thanked a, a lot of times. And I, I'm not saying don't say thank you to military service members. That's great. I appreciate it when people do. But, but really, we should be th saying thank you to machinists and 3D printers and engineers, particularly if they're really developing those technologies that are going to help, um, you know, um, the USB at least m more independent and and be able to mitigate some of these supply chain issues and build up you know a robust and agile manufacturing uh network to support uh the nation and our allies and partners regardless of the adversary if that makes sense it does so would you say that or um is there another topic that you would say that you know the u.s really needs to organize reorganize itself to position itself in a way that we don't necessarily fall further behind when it comes to hypersonics, yeah, you know, what is really what is the main focus that we really need to position ourselves, and how do we need to position ourselves to become a winner here? Two things um, in this, and uh, and I've touched on both of them, but I'll it's worth going back. You know, um, our, our adversaries are, are have have more people um, and have more um, more structure, maybe, but but one. And they have more access to strategic minerals and materials, right? So I'll start with that, and then I'll get to the next point. So, but here's the thing. Those materials aren't all resident in their country. What's resident in their country is, is the expertise on how to refine those materials and the, the whole of nation effort to go after those materials wherever they may exist, which, by the way, are primarily in Africa. And, uh, but, the, but their challenge, their problem is exactly what I just said a lot of people and very organized and 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 they don't value uh, necessarily other cultures and they don't really care about you know other nations outside of their own and i think um they they aren't creating a sustainable ability to extract those minerals and refine those minerals right and so we as a nation need to provide an alternative right because we also don't have all of the critical minerals and and, and uh, materials that we need in our country However, there are, uh, again, in many, not just Africa, just not in the continent of Africa, but many other places, but primarily the continent of Africa, you know, we have an opportunity to do, to, to fix wrongs and, and right wrongs and provide an alternative conversation to our adversaries and say, listen, we, we recognize you have this, this, this material we need. Let's figure out a way that you can employ your folks, increase and educate your workforce to do more technical high paying jobs and, and. Let's figure out to do it, how to do it in a sustainable way. Because by the way, the other guys aren't. Uh, they're just paying people off and exploiting nature. Very similar, quite frankly, to colonization and mercantilism in the past, right? right. We, have a, we have an opportunity to change that narrative. So that's one. We have to secure that. Without securing some of these strategic minerals and then knowing how to refine them and, and do that here in the States you know, and work with our partners uh, and the folks who have these minerals in a, in a, in a just and, and profitable way for both, we're never going to get there, but that's an alternative way to do it, and we can win that way if we if we drive that conversation whole of a whole nation. And the other part is back to the people, right? I mentioned we're not going to be able to do it in the volumes, 
But we have, and it's not cliche, we have an incredibly, incredibly creative population. One, because of the, the nature of our immigrants, you know, people from all over the world, different perspectives, and really some people who went through a lot of very challenging times in their life, and they're problem solvers, right? I mean, if you grew up at a, you know, pick a nation, pick a developing nation where you had to deal with civil war and food crises and everything else, and you somehow found a way to survive and then get here to the United States, holy smokes, you are a problem solver, right? And so if we can, uh, again, just like we did in the past during World War II, I mean, people forget the majority of those engineers who helped us develop the bomb were German, right? Right. So we, we leveraged the talents of our immigrants and we can do that again. And we still are attracting a great number of people to this country with great talents. So, so I think one, leverage that creativity and problem solving capability. And then from a homegrown aspect, you know, we talked about it, educating the workforce, educating our, 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 you know, like you said, your schools were starting to make that change. My schools weren't when I graduated in 90, we, everybody needed to go get a four-year degree and forget about technical fields, right? So we've got to reinvigorate uh, and, and inspire kids, this next generation, these next generations of kids to leverage their gaming skills, leverage their coding skills, leverage those things that a lot of times as parents, you know, especially I'm almost 50, you know, we dismiss that stuff. I mean, I don't, I, I'm down there gaming with them, but you know, uh, I, I think I'm one of the few, right? And so, you know, it's, but, but we've got to encourage that because right. it's those skill sets, it's those mindsets, that agile mindset and learning how to deal with technology and digital twins and, and all the things you mentioned that that creativity is something that our adversaries don't have. And that's something that we have in spades because of our culture, um, because of our, our, our you know, our tradition of, of, of incorporating our, our, our wonderful uh, and intelligent immigrants and, and then all of us becoming Americans and working together mm-hmm. as one nation. I mean, we, we need to reinvigorate that. I know it sounds like a bit of a bumper sticker, but quite frankly, it's the only way we're going to get there. Um, so we got to figure it out. And I, I, I'm still, you know, I'm a, the eternal optimist. I think we can. Yeah, I think uh, you should probably run for president after this. <laughs> but I, just a few notes on my end. That, I mean, that, I mean, you're really just hitting the nail on the head. Like winning doesn't necessarily mean that all the partners that were along on the project lose. And I think right. that's, that's super important, especially when we're talking about materials and gathering those materials for these types of projects. You know, when we just look at, you know, um, you know, other places within Africa that are being mined, you know, mm-hmm. we don't necessarily need to create ports for everyone to succeed. And I think that's super important. And I think yep. especially where the U.S. is positioning itself is to not creating these types of environments where labor is then looked at, you know, as a, what would you say, something lesser than. And, right. and, and also kind of you know, looking into, you know, utilizing our problem solvers. You know, mm-hmm. we have, you know, immigrants coming in every day that are just brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, really kind of you know, taking in consideration they're they have different walks of life and, and different education backgrounds that we need to be able to utilize a little bit better. And I think, you know, there's a huge culture shift that has been taking place in the U.S. that I feel like is ex- extremely powerful and that is going to position ourselves a little bit better to only have better defense capabilities, but also just better you know, living. You know, right. so this is going to promote us to, you know, the next phase in life rather than there's other cultures out there that have significantly less, you know, what would you say? Um, Opportunities. Kind of a, a opportunity of a or a melting pot uh, culturally. Mm-hmm. 
So right. I, I think you're you're really just you're hitting every every point that I think we're we're really you know us as Americans are really trying to you know promote forward. Right. We have a long tradition of it. We need to we need to remember that, and we mm-hmm. need to um, remember who we are and where we all came from, and that we were all immigrants at one time. I mean, except for our Native Americans, um, and they bring a great different perspective as well. So I mean. That is what's going to win. It's going to be the diversity of our ideas, the diversity of our people, because mm-hmm. the people that we are competing against are not right. and do not and do not value that. And so we've got to remember that as we move forward and and how we approach problems and how we approach manufacturing, and how we approach defense needs to incorporate that, because, by the way, it always has. We just sometimes forget our history lessons. Um, so we just need to get back to that. Uh, remember who we are as a people and who we are as a nation. And um and move forward together. And, and to your point, Dylan, I think this can be maybe that cause like the space race was that brings us together again, that brings that diverse talent set that we have in this country together again for a common purpose. And I, I'd love to see that. And powerful if we do, words. we'll win. Yeah. Extremely powerful words. I think Thank that, you. I think we will definitely um, succeed in the end. And I think that's going to be really the, the spur of that and the push of that is going to be our mix of cultures and, you know, the kind of the American mindset of, you know, putting our, our head down and working together as a team. That's it. That's it. Looking well, forward, looking forward to doing it with you, Dylan, and, and the rest of your listeners. Yeah. Well, Howie, uh, I appreciate it. And thank you so much for all the powerful words. And I, I'm looking forward to looping back with you on our next uh, opportunity to, to speak on the podcast. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you, Dylan. Look forward to it. Take care. Take care, everybody. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about EWI or get involved, please check out their website at www.ewi.org. That's ewi.org. The TechShift podcast is sponsored by Phillips Federal the leader in the federal marketplace. I'm your host, Dylan Drake. Thank you for listening.